Okay, just stop where you are. We'll pray, and then you can go to wherever you're going next. Here we go. Grant us, O Lord, not to mind earthly things, but to love things that are heavenly. And while we now dwell among things that are passing away, to cling to those things that abide forever. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, good to see you. Uh, I have a note here that says if you put money in that basket, it will go to pads. So that's good. Uh, business is up, of course, because the weather gets cold. So if you put something in there, that would be great. Uh, questions about anything? About anything at all? Things will start to get busy now. Everything good? All right, so we're playing around in Matthew 18 and this notion of the kingdom of God and what that would mean. So you have this very strange thing where Jesus predicts his death and the disciples try to talk him out of it. And you remember that's exactly what happened when Jesus went into the wilderness uh, for prayer and fasting at the start of his ministry. The devil arrived to tempt him and primarily to try to talk him out of it. And Jesus is very clear about the fact that he'll die, which is, of course, no way to be a king or to be a messiah. And then you have this very strange interaction where the disciples almost act as if nothing happened. Jesus predicts his death, which basically says to them, I'll be the smallest of all. If you die, uh, people forget about you, and it's proof that you're a failure. Um, so then you have the strange question of the disciples saying, who among us is going to be the greatest one? And this is the question that Jesus is trying to shake them out of. And one way that he does it is to say, and you'll hear this theme again and again, Jesus is always for the least, the last, the lost, the little, and the dead. And if you read through the parables, one way to read them is to read them as he emphasizes somebody who's little or somebody who's last or someone who's about to die. And in just in this Matthew 18 bit, he rings in three or four of those. So first he brings these children he puts a child in the middle and says, if you're like this, like this little child, very little child, infant or um, very new child, then you'll be the greatest in the kingdom, which of course doesn't make sense to um, almost anyone. And then Jesus, um, and, and you ask yourself, why, why, why would such a thing be? And the answer is, at least in part, the children believe what you tell them. One of the great things about kids is they believe what you tell them. Until, of course, you lie to them, but that's not an issue between you and the Lord. So um, children believe what you tell them, and they follow where you bid them, and they do that with a sense of wonder. And that's about how far we got last time. But you have this very cryptic thing. So I'm in Matthew 18. If you've got a Bible, you can spin to it uh, if you like where Jesus talks about, I've also, I guess, printed the text for you too, where uh, Jesus talks about scandalizing a child. Right? So if you want to, you can either look up Matthew 18, or this is sort of at uh, number 7 and number 8. Right? Kind of midway through number 8. Whoever welcomes a child in my name welcomes me. So if you want to see God, see children. This, of course, is what he'll say in Matthew 26, too. You did it to the least of these, you did it to me. And this is one of the reasons when you engage other people, it's so desperately important to engage them in love. 
because as you engage them, you engage Christ in the same way. Uh, whoever receives a child in my name receives me, but whoever causes these little ones in me to sin, that is, the word there is scandal, the one, one of you who scandals one, one of these little ones, it'd be better to have a millstone around his neck and have him drowned in the depth of the sea. Now, we're sort of given to the drama of that description, but I wonder if you could just pull it back just a bit. Um, you know, clearly, no, none of you are going to be drowned in the depths of the sea, and also, um, this goes, this follows on uh, with, you know, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Of course, nobody standing there got out their hacksaw, right? So you have to ask yourself, what could that possibly, possibly mean? Even if you soften the blow, it's equally sad and incriminating, which is if you scandalize other people, especially if you scandalize uh, children, you really become useless to God. In the same way, um, when Jesus talks just a little farther on about if salt loses its taste, it becomes insipid, it becomes useless. Now, of course, you know, the question of whether salt loses its taste, that is an odd way to describe this. But you know that um, salt comes in measure and has a proper use. And too much salt is repulsive to you, right? Damaging to you. So the question we started with is, what's the kingdom look like, and what does it mean for us to be citizens of the kingdom? And Jesus repeatedly identifies love and humility as the way that we should proceed. And of course, the great condemnation of the church is that often the church does not proceed either in love or humility. Now, to make the point, Jesus tells this story of the lost sheep, and we'll go there in just a second. But if you have, a, if you have a, an outline in front of you, where I've gone with you is kind of the middle of number eight. If you find yourself on the side of winners all the time, then there's, uh, you're likely in danger, right? Because, and I give you the, the, you know, the other famous scandalized text in Scripture, is the one from 1 Corinthians 1, where Paul talks about the difference between us and the world. Sidebar. There is now among Christians uh, an increasing interest in withdrawal from the world. I want to warn against this desperately. This is not the way of Christians. It's occasionally been the way of sex. But even, you know, this is often known under the new rubric, the Benedictine option. Have a good think about it, but... One of the things the Benedictines were known for is stability. So they would go to a place and they would never leave. In fact, they could never leave without violating their vows or having permission. So the Benedictines, in many ways, it's, a, it's an odd way to talk about this. Of course they established their, uh, their monasteries, their houses. Of course they did that. But the interesting thing about the, the um, Benedictines is they stayed. You remember we ran, I ran a margin comment probably four or five months ago about these guys, uh, the brothers in Algeria who knew they were in danger, and yet they stayed. And one night, seven of the nine guys were kidnapped, and they were all beheaded. And the, lad, the two guys who survived are still musing about how they were spared. Uh, they just happened to be lucky. One guy was sleeping in the wrong room, and another guy was working in the basement when it happened. 
But the point is, they put themselves into the world, as Jesus says, as leaven in the loaf, or as yeast in the bread. And I would be very careful, I would be very careful about following, of course we don't live as the world lives. You know, we're in the world, but not of the world, as Jesus says. But I'd be extraordinarily careful about the urge to withdraw from the world, because if they don't hear from you, who, whom will they hear from? Right? And so you ask yourself, is a witness better if you withdraw and speak to no one, or if you have your head lopped off in Algeria? Well, you know, it probably goes with the Algerians. Probably, you know, they're the winners, even though they're the losers. So you look at this text from 1 Corinthians, the cross is folly. And this is precisely what the disciples are struggling with this morning, that the cross is folly. You know, this is just stupid. It's just stupid, except as I sort of tried to lead you to last week. You come to the end of your life, and you sort of say, was it worth it? And you ask yourself about the things that mattered. Um, you know, to sort of put pleasure or things at the top of your list is to be a sad old man. You know, what matters most in life is Christ, and then the people that Christ deigns to love, which is all of them. And so to live in the image of Christ is to love all of them. And these things can fit together. It takes a bit of work. In fact, you can even fit together the cross with the power of God and the scandal all in one sentence. The cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God, right? And God comes and says, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise. I'm at verse 21. I just turned the page. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And then there's the, there's the bit about the scandal. Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom. So this is a couple of ways you can go about your life and your spiritual life. The most important thing is that you can interpret signs. Another important way to go through your life is to seek wisdom, to be the smartest guy in the room. You remember my caution to you that you should always be the dumbest guy in the room. That will move you much farther in life. Jews demand signs. Greek, Greeks speak wisdom. So we're not Jews and we're not Greeks in this sense. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. That's stupid. That doesn't make any sense. But to those who are called, that is, who are resurrected, both Jews and Greeks, it's the power and the wisdom of God. So if you want to know who God is, you go to the cross. This is probably the most genuine and best thing about being a Lutheran is that Luther, you know, for all his um, troubles and crankiness, the great thing that he could do for you is to push you toward the cross, especially um, at the death point. You know, you go to the cross and you sit there for a while and you understand what life was actually all about. So I want to encourage you as you move through life, you know, to seek the things that are from Christ and not to seek the things that are said to be the greatest or the most powerful or the most valuable. The disciples struggled with this desperately, uh, right to the end. They looked for how they might be kings. May we sit at your right and at your left hand. And when uh, Jesus then 
uh, was crucified, part of their devastation is that they had bet the wrong horse. That everything that they'd ever hoped for was lost, and now where were they? So it was a grim time for them between uh, Friday and Sunday. And it must have been a remarkable thing to be at Emmaus, where Jesus interpreted the scriptures, celebrated the Holy Supper, and opened their hearts, and their hearts burned within them. The trick for you and for me is to always have those burning hearts. And the way that that's done is to follow Christ in utter obedience and to hear that obedience as a gospel word and not as a law word. It is only obedience to Christ that opens your world to the divine. It is only in seeing as Jesus sees and saying as Jesus says and doing as Jesus does that you become fully human and that your life matters. It's the only way that God can have good use of you. And everything in the world is against it, but it doesn't mean that you withdraw from the world. It means you engage the world on Jesus' terms. And this is what it is to be a Christian. And sometimes Christians then are on top, you know, 300 AD to, I don't know, 1900 or 1700. And sometimes they're not. The first two centuries of the church, the catacombs, right? And, you know, the last hundred years or so, and declining. There is, of course, um, the empirical data of the last 50 or 100 years when one might legitimately ask the question whether secularism has delivered a more just and more fair society than Christianity did with its influence. But that's not a question that people are largely asking yet. Stick around. Maybe it'll come. It'll have to get bad before it gets better. So anyway, I'm at the end of this then. The only way to win is to lose. And the only way to live is to die. And the only winning is being redeemed and turned around. Right? So we become like our teacher. I turned the page. And there's the question about if the salt becomes insipid. If you forget that losing wins, right? And the churches often forgot that losing wins. We're particularly susceptible to that here uh, in our area where there's this veneer of everything is okay. A kind of the wheat and veneer of I have a really polished and wonder fa- wonderful family and I hope you do too. But if you don't, I'll be on the A bus and you'll be on the B bus, right? It's one of the dangers of living here because we have it um, pretty well. We all have it pretty well. And even people who have it pretty well then tend to sort themselves by power and by influence, which is exactly the opposite of what Jesus does. Um, So kind of at the bottom of that page... Jesus didn't come to save the good, the rich, the beautiful, or the self-sufficient. And Jesus did not come to save the know-it-alls. This, again, is a lesson for the church in how we present ourselves uh, to the community. We met the, the burgeoning call committee, met for the first time yesterday. And at the top of the list of things uh, in in the physician description is hospitality. 
which is to say, to welcome everyone. Or as Jesus said uh, in this little parable, to seek the one who's gone astray. Or if you will, the little, the last, the least, the lost, and the dead. And when we in our own purity, Villa Park Soldiers and Sailors Club, can't find a place for anybody who's not quite as nice as we are, we've stopped being the church. So it's terribly important for us to be open to people who are unlike us, and especially open to those troublesome sinners who seem to be all around us. You're not laughing a bit. I'm trying to make fun of other people, and you won't play along. So, I mean, I guess I could make fun of us, and we could see what happens, but I'm just, just, you know, just curious. Very serious this morning. It's, it's okay, though. And you might, you might notice here, uh, just remember, this is true for raising kids or being a person or being a church, the penalty for not listening is to remain the way you are, right? If you have kids, you've been through this. If you're a pastor, you've been through this. If you manage people, you've been through this. People come and complain about all sorts of things. And you can say to them, this is exactly what would change the world. This would change your life. I bet it even happens with students. Perhaps you say, you know, and then, you know, do they, do they listen? Well, I mean, the penalty for not listening is to stay the way you are. Um, but we should, we should sort of carry on and see what happens. You still okay? If you, I mean, if you can't figure this out by now, you know, I'm, I'm, on, um, I'm trying to get my last licks in. And uh, it's going to take a little while. But um, these are the sort of things that make the church work in the image of Christ. And uh, if you don't have them, you can sort of carry on with a sign out front, but you're, you're not what Jesus intends for you. And there is a feel in this place that's been developed and hard won over the years through good things and bad that is about um, welcoming everybody and doing our best to um, even things out. So there's not a greater and a lesser. But as long as you can hold that, you'll be in the image of God. And the moment you lose that, you've become the disciples who ask, who is the greatest? I told um, the call committee, so we're not supposed to talk about what happens in the call committee, but I can talk about what I said in the call committee, okay? Because I'm telling you directly. I'm on very few blogs and streams because uh, I'm... I've never blogged anything, and it's be, it'll be good. Someday when I go in that, what's the name of that copper cage that Gene Hackman sits in in the movie? My kids know. Simpson, you would know that. What's the name of that cage? So that nobody can, like, read your thoughts. And What's it called? The Faraday cage, yes. I've begun to construct one in my basement. Don't tell Kirby. <laughs> so, uh, you know, when I, someday when I retire and move into my Faraday cage, you know, there'll be no trace of me. It'll be glorious. Uh, but I was, uh, you know, I, but I do lurk because occasionally somebody said, oh, there's, you want to be watching on this. And in one of them, um, there was a sort of written, I think, by a pastor who said, you know, we have two million members. Um, it's so troublesome. When we get down to a million, everything will be a-okay. To which I think to myself, actually, no. A million will be about 990,000 too many, Right? And then 10,000 will go down to 5,000, I tell you. I, the true story, I don't think I've ever told you this. 
some renegade Lutheran types took me out to dinner and said, we're going to split off from the Senate and start our own gig. Would St. John want to join? They always want to ask if St. John wants to join because you're fun and you have money, right? <laughs> it's probably more because you have money. And then I said, um, sort of over soup, of course I'll split if I can be the bishop. <laughs> and they said, of course you could be the bishop. And then I said, of course I wouldn't split because I would only be the bishop until you voted me out because you don't know what a bishop is, <laughs> which is an appointment for life as king, which goes with power, which goes with Satan, which is Antichrist. So here we are just the way we always were, right? It always goes wrong when it's of power. But when you can look at a million people and say, those people are horrible. If they could only be like us, that is the death of the church. That's a different kingdom, okay? So, number nine, see that you don't despise these little ones. For I tell you, in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. So this is your guardian angel. I tell you in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who's in heaven. So the angels guard you. And you should remember that, you know, um, you know, when you sin, your angel sometimes has to, I think, blush a bit and turn his eyes. Um, I wish I wouldn't, I wish I wasn't seeing that. But mostly it's the great consolation that um, you, should have been dead ten, that you should have been dead ten times by now, um, except for the intervention of your angel, right? What do you think? A man has a hundred sheep, and one of them has gone astray. Does he not leave the 99 in the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? Actually, you know what? He doesn't. Because um, if you have 99 sheep and you leave to search for the one, when you come back, you're going to have one sheep and the 99 will be gone. So at least you have to understand the, the rhetoric that's in this, the hyperbola, or the presuppositions of Jesus about sheep. You know... If you got 99 and you lose one, you'll take the point, I think, that the one is extraordinarily valuable. But I also want you to take the other half of the point, which is that sheep is dead. Good is dead. Lost sheep don't find themselves. It all goes together with the other lost um, stories in Scripture. Lost sheep is a dead sheep, and um, a lost coin is a dead asset. And uh, a debtor is a deadbeat, right? Everybody's dead, dead, dead. Like you and like me. And as you recall, only the dead can be resurrected. And the only way in to the kingdom is resurrection. And of course, you who are clever know that the very next thing that comes after this is how you approach somebody who's sinned against you. And then you remember that every absolution is a little resurrection. And that this is how the kingdom of God works. And you might ask yourself whether this is how your own life works, whether this is how your family works, whether this is how your church works, your synod, and the greater church as it moves on in the world. Does it move in the humility that always goes after the one sheep who's lost? So we have this sense that the sheep is dead And he'll always be dead unless the shepherd comes to find him, right? This is just a riff on not being able to merit your own forgiveness, not being able to decide for Christ, 
not being able to make yourself alive. There's only one story in the entire scriptures. The only story in scripture is the resurrection of the dead. It comes in many forms, and it even comes in parables. What do you think? A man has a hundred sheep. One of them has gone astray. Doesn't he leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one? Um, If he's the treasurer and is just thinking about opportunity cost and what he'll say to the shareholders, he does not. But if he's Jesus and he remembers that we win by losing and he knows that his job is to raise the dead and he also knows when people are horribly lost, they often come to humility because they realize dependence. And it is when people are deeply lost that they have the possibility to come to life that can be enjoyed deeply. And then when he finds it, verse 13, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that went astray. That great word about uh, joy, that Dying, uh, the greatest joy in the world is to find those people who are lost. So heaven will be a poorer place without your face. And you were meant for eternity, and the reason you're here is because you know that. But you don't have to go far in your family tree or in your neighborhood to discover people who don't know that. The possibilities are... You can scorn them and run your church from two million to a million or your, your family from ten to five. And you can be quite proud about your holiness and all you've done to preserve the kingdom of God for only good people. Or you can do what Jesus does, which is say, you all stay here, I'll be right back. Do whatever you've been doing. Stick together while he goes out to find the one who's been lost. Charis, kara, eucharistia, all those things you know. The Greek words are all tied together. Um, Grace and gift and joy and thanksgiving. Right? And that's how the Christian life works. Come rejoice with me. My son who was lost has been found. My son who was dead is alive. There's only one story in scripture. This is the story. If you ask why the church doesn't work, grow, move, um, become attractive in the world, the answer is not that you withdraw from the world and do your own little thing by yourselves. Jesus sent them out into the world two by two. Right? Jesus lived for the joy of bringing one home. And over and over again, hospitality is the mark of those who are gathered together in his name. So um, these little ones are so close and dear to the Heavenly Father that he's assigned angels to watch over them. And Jesus himself watches over the strays, which, of course, is why you should never despair of your parents or your children or your friends who have gone off the rails. It's not your business to um, put them back on the rails. 
Your business is to find them and to love them with the sort of humility that would allow them to believe again. For whatever you know, trouble he may have caused, Teilhard de Chardin once said, the reason that people don't believe in the gospel is because it's never been properly presented to them in love. We might try that and see whether that would be the thing that could change us around. And you'll notice then, um, he comes and says, you know, come rejoice with me, right? Come rejoice with me, at least in the Lucan text. Come rejoice with me, you gather. You know, with me, rejoice. The one who's lost has been found. The one who's been dead has been resurrected. And so this notion of um, Jesus' will is that everybody's in and nobody is out. We even have to think about this in terms of the Holy Supper, right? Um, Regularly, if you were asked in terms of the Holy Supper what we're known for, um, outside, not inside, people's abiding sense is that we hold people away. So the very first... Um, the very first meeting of students at Princeton Seminary when I went for my PhD, I mean, this is the initial thing. So you sort of ask people's name and where they're from and such. The very first comment I got was, you know, I'm from the Missouri Center. The immediate answer was, so you fence the table. Now, I'd never heard the expression. First, it's not a table, it's an altar, dork. And second, I don't do anything there. I only do what I'm given to do. That aside, you know, niceties aside, just so you know, I mean, my goal is to commune every last person in the entire world on Jesus' terms, right? Which is to discern that this is the same body and blood that dripped from the cross. That's what the text says in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. Now, you have to work with that a little bit, but um, in the way that you don't go from two million to one million, the primary thing you're known for should not be keeping people away, but drawing people in. Of course it's on Jesus' terms. Of course it is. This is not our ministry, right? We are stewards of mysteries given to us and stewards of people whom God created. But for goodness sake... The job of the church is to seek and to find, you know, to be sent and to go, and in the going make disciples of all nations everywhere, so everything to everybody. This isn't a parable about what you do. This is a parable about what God does in spite of you. You were lost and he found you, and you didn't do a dang thing about it. He did it all himself, right? So, um, and this is the other danger, you see, when you're so interested in holding people out, and especially for pastors, the great danger is if you would just clean yourselves up a little bit, if you would just do just a little bit better, if you could be a bit more bright and shiny, if you could cheer up, if you could get better, if you could try not to embarrass us, if you'd stop making you know, so much trouble. You know, but of course, then you've already asked people to do what we say you could never do and which we deny can be done, which is to wind ourselves up by our own power in order to be acceptable to God. The whole point of this is that 
you are dead and Jesus makes you alive. It's Luther in the Heidelberg Disputation where he says, God doesn't look around the room and pick out the ones who are lovable and then love them. God looks around the room and by loving them, by loving you, makes you lovable. This is love, that God loves you in spite of yourself. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still enemies, he was our friend. This is all we've got. And we can't let it be derailed by how people look or how people act or what their particular sin is or how we feel on a given day or how it might look to other people or if it doesn't make us look powerful or good or if we're not the latest trend. None of this matters. There's a single thing that we're meant to do, which is to seek and to save the lost. Jesus, I came not to be served, but to serve my life and give it as a ransom for many. People can say that. You can say that very easily, but it's in the doing. It's in the humility. It's in the love. It's in the orientation. It's in the hermeneutic. It is about seeing that God loves every last person, even the little, the least, the lost, and the dead. And that over and over again, Jesus tells the same story. This is the reason that I'm here. And when he says, follow me, he means you uh, should follow him in exactly that way. So, and I've given you this quote a thousand times, but it makes sense to me, right? Um, Of course this doesn't mean, and regularly people will see, you know, you're so open-minded that you've lost your brains. You know, I get it. But of course this doesn't mean that you just go out and do evil. Of course it doesn't. And this, you know, famous quote for Kapan, which you're probably sick of, but it makes me happy, so I'll read it to you. The reason for not going out and sinning all you like, this is um, under number 12, the reason for not going out and sinning all you like is the same reason for not going out and putting your nose in a slicing machine. It's dumb and stupid and no fun. Some individual sins may have pleasure still attached to them because of the residual goodness of the realities they are abusing. This is exactly our world today. Our world is in the deep abuse of residual of residual. Um, Beauty. So it's so interesting because now, of course, I probably got 10, you know, I'm on several news streams. Just, I'm not, this is our church news streams, regular news streams. I probably got 10 articles this week about um, um, the lack of kids being born so the world can't go on, and then also what's being called a sex crisis, which is nobody has sex anymore because they're too busy. Um, playing video games or chasing other things, or I think there's a deeper theological thing, which is sex has been so reduced to sort of animal pleasure that people have just sort of, like, it just isn't worth the time. It's so interesting, and it all goes together, but nobody's connecting the dots. It's so interesting. There's a residual goodness there, of course, of being connected to one, someone else on the most intimate level. There's a residual goodness but residual goodness can't hold up against the, the, the sins that we would do. So, um, you know, adultery can indeed be pleasant, and tying one on can amuse. But betrayal, jealousy, love grown cold, and the gray dawn of the morning after are nobody's idea of a good time. That's exactly where we are in America today. We're in nobody's idea of a good time. Nobody's having a good time. Even church people are withdrawing because the times aren't good, right? What does Jesus do when the times aren't good? Garada out, forward, straight on. Follow me, two by two, 
sent out to what? Resurrect the dead, to see the demons fall like lightning from heaven. So if the church loses its way, it's on us. Jesus has been extraordinarily clear. Now the good thing for you is, you pray for the Holy Spirit, you put your feet in Jesus' footsteps, no matter what anybody else thinks or anybody else does. You know this is like, you know, the one thing that, you know, anybody in my family can drive me crazy is by saying, yeah, but they, dot, 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 dot. I'm like, we don't, you know, Richard Feynman's wife, the great physicist, when he was worried about people accepting his new theories, why do you care what they think? Really, why do you care what they think? Why do you care what anybody else thinks? The only thing that's important to you is what Jesus thinks about you. So the church carries on, right? And you're going to end up being a loser. And you're going to end up dead sometimes. And the great news is that only the dead can be resurrected, and Jesus likes losers. He was a loser too, right? It didn't exactly end well for him. And then it did. So, yeah, I, I want to do a little bit more, but I should probably stop. What I do, I'm not sure if I'm going to do this for next week or not, but, um, of course, the one place where this gets most, maybe I'll do this or not, I don't know. The one place this gets most abused, of course, is forgiving each other and going to people who have offended you. Right? The forgiveness of sins. Asking for forgiveness and give, delivering forgiveness, which is to say, finding the dead and resurrecting them with a word from you, which is a word from Jesus. Because, as he said at the beginning, you do it to the least of these, you do it to me, or you accept a child like this, you accept me and the one who sent me. So, bonus prize, you get the son and the father. That's very interesting. That all felt a bit grim. And it was such a nice day when you came in. <laughs> but let me just, I, mean, I guess I want to, on a, on a brighter note, but discipline, you know, discipline can feel sometimes, if we think about it in the wrong I mean, what I want you to feel is energized to obey. I don't know if I got you there. But discipline is a great thing. Obedience is the most gospelly word. Every time I go to one of the seminaries and give this lecture, there's always a professor to give me this. To which I'm like, hey, I don't care what you think. Like Feynman, you know. I care what Jesus thinks about me. And, right, when Jesus says follow me, he doesn't mean follow me and do whatever you want. He doesn't mean follow me and put your nose in the slicer. He doesn't mean follow me and have residual goodness. He doesn't mean follow me and be hateful. He doesn't mean follow me and be inhospitable. What he means is follow me and let's go raise the dead. What raises the dead? Love. The touch of Christ. What makes people happy? The joy of being resurrected. What builds a community? Come rejoice with me. My son who was lost is found. Come rejoice with me. The sheep that was lost is found. We're back to 100. Perfect number, 10 by 10. Um, that's a church I want to be, and that's a church I want you to be. And largely, we've been able to be that kind of church. But I warn you, of course, that it's one thing to um, build wonderful things, but even more difficult is to maintain wonderful things. And I particularly worry about, kind of last thing, people who haven't suffered their way into this. If you're my age and you've been around long enough, you've suffered your way into this, and you don't go places you shouldn't go because you know how deep the pain can be. The great nervousness for me is that so many of you have um, come later to the game, and uh, 
you almost have to intellectually or by faith appreciate you know, the suffering that's gone before you. Often with young pastors, you know, and they're about this and that, I often say, well, you, know, you haven't suffered enough. Right? Bonhoeffer used to say, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, um, Corby used to say, uh, if, you, if you're a pastor, you don't pray the Psalms, you haven't suffered enough. It's true for you, too. If you don't pray the Psalms, you haven't suffered enough. Expect more. Pray for more. Right? So the great, the great test of people here under 40 is going to be that um, you're going to have to try to just take it on faith that if you put your nose in the slicing machine, in my last thing, I got a call once in my first parish because um, to go to the hospital because of one brother bet his little brother. I can't even tell you the story. Sure I can. He dropped a penny in the blender and said, I bet you can't pull it out. Yeah. Now here's the thing. Intellectually, you should know that you shouldn't put your hand in the blender. Trust other people. You can't get the penny out. It's several thousand RPMs per minute. This is a really bad idea. I'm saying to you, if you get lazy and cultivate suffering and be inhospitable and unloving and you only think about yourselves and you withdraw and humility isn't part of your game plan and you really want to be a winner so everybody can admire you, that's antichrist and it's not going to go well. My advice to you is don't stick your hand in the blender. But if you do, we'll be there for you. Just call. The number runs 24 hours a day, and I'm on call this week. Okay, let's pray. <laughs> Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Thanks, friends. See you soon.